Welcome to Question Period. I'm Evan Solomon. On our program today, the Michaels on trial. Their arbitrary detention is completely unacceptable, as is the lack of transparency around these court proceedings. Our top priority remains securing their release. China puts the two Michaels on trial, Michael Spavor on Friday, Michael Kovrig tomorrow. Is it a remotely fair process? What can Canada do to secure their release? Michael Kovrig's wife, Vina Najibula, joins us, and so does Canada's former ambassador to China, Guy Saint-Jacques. Then, Biden's bailout. Canada and the United States are finalizing an agreement on an exchange of AstraZeneca doses that will see Canada receiving 1.5 million doses before the end of the month. The U.S. releases a million and a half doses of AstraZeneca to Canada. But will the U.S. hold up millions of others Canada's already purchased? We'll put that to the Procurement Minister, Anita Ananda. She joins us and we'll get reaction from Washington with Canada's ambassador to the U.S., Kirsten Hillman. Then, O'Toole's challenge? Together, we will give Justin Trudeau the fight of his life. Because there's one thing the Liberals fear more than anything else a Conservative Party with the courage to grow, to be bold, and to change. With election preparation in full swing, can Aaron O'Toole unite the factions in his party? What was his key message at the party's big convention that wrapped up yesterday? We break that down today on The Scrum with former Conservative Deputy Leader Lisa Raitt. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. There is an, uh, an, an obligation for the uh, uh, authorities, Chinese authorities, to uh, grant access uh, to uh, trials of foreign citizens under the uh, Vienna Convention on Consular Relations and, of course, in Canada's bilateral agreement with China on consular affairs. Uh, there is an obligation on the Chinese authorities' part to admit uh, consular officials to attend uh, uh, hearings of, uh, of our citizens. So we are disappointed in the lack of access and the lack of transparency in the process. Tomorrow, Canadian Michael Kovrig, who's been arbitrarily imprisoned in China for 832 days, will be put on a secret trial by the Chinese government for espionage. He will have no access to the evidence against him. He'll have maybe 20 minutes with a lawyer. There will be no access from the Canadian consular services in this secret court that has over a 99% conviction rate. It will likely be the same as the Friday trial of Michael Spavor, who was arrested at the same time. It was an under two-hour trial on Friday, and Mr. Spavor went back to his dark cell to await what kind of verdict they will be. Canada has long called for the release of the two Michaels, who were arrested after Canada held Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou in Vancouver, after Canada was simply complying with an extradition request from the U.S. But what can Canada do to secure the release of the two Michaels? We begin our coverage today with Michael Kovrig's wife, Vina Najibula. And, and obviously, the whole country, the world is watching this trial. Uh, Vina, and I thank you for joining us. You, your husband, Michael, goes on trial tomorrow. What is your chief concern about what he's facing? Uh, thank you, Evan. Well, uh, since we first heard of the news of the trial, my concern has been Michael's mental health and uh, how he will be making sense of what's happening uh, on Monday, um, how he will go into it. And uh, I worry, of course, for him. 
But I also know that ultimately this isn't a legal process, Evan. We've all seen for over 830 days what this has been about. So no matter what happens on Monday, uh, Michael's innocence is not in question. The fact that this is an arbitrary, unjust detention is not going to be in any way changed. And uh, our focus must also not change and remain on the fact that we have to find a way to get him home. How do you regard the Chinese judicial process after you saw what happened to Michael Spavor on Friday? Uh, well, it's difficult for me to comment. As you said, um, Evan, there was not very much that we saw. Uh, everything sort of happened uh, quickly and uh, and uh, behind closed doors. So, And as you noted, uh, it's less than 1% uh, chance of uh, being found innocent. But what I hope is even hope against hope, that even if there's only 1% chance that Michael will have an opportunity to defend his innocence and um, to show that, in fact, there is no basis for uh, these allegations, uh, that he has done absolutely nothing wrong to endanger Chinese national security or Chinese mm. people. Um, I know that's that's a long shot, and that's why I don't uh, put a lot of hope into it. But even if there is less than 1% chance, um, maybe maybe something could happen. But apart from that, our focus must remain on uh, securing a diplomatic solution, uh, working with the U.S. and making sure that there's some kind of a trilateral compromise or an outcome that would put to an end this mm. two years of injustice. The Canadian government has been trying to get your husband and Michael Spavor released, as you say, for more than two years. It hasn't yes. worked. What do they need to do practically on the ground now once these, you know, by the end of tomorrow, it's going to be, they're going to be awaiting a verdict. They could be in prison for a long time, even just awaiting that verdict. What needs to happen right now? No, absolutely. Um, this uh, this whole week, we, we've been reminded of the stark reality that real lives are at stake here, that if left to its own process, uh, we know the outcome here, which is why I think the conversations that have happened for the last few months uh, with the United States in particular, with the Biden administrations, those are now critical. Uh, you are asking very good questions in terms of what do we do now, and that has been what I've been advocating for 800 and plus days. Um, I wish I had the power to to change the situation. Uh, I don't. Uh, mm -hmm. All I have is the um, the advocacy and uh, the the ability to implore those in power to to urgently uh, bring about this to an end through through a negotiated outcome. We've always known that this isn't a legal process. There needs to be political and diplomatic intervention. Before I let you go. Um... Have you heard from Michael Kovrig recently? We know that your husband has not, he wasn't even allowed access to consular service. Uh, he's, he's in this dark cell. I mean, it's, it's such a contrast to what, frankly, Meng Wanzhou is doing, living in her mansion in Vancouver with access to legal services. When was the last time you even got a chance to hear from him? Uh, his last consular visit was uh, at the end of January, uh, and that is a moment where we get to hear how he's doing through Canadian officials who meet with him. Uh, and we also got letters at, at that time in January. Uh, he was still hanging in, uh, enduring day-to-day, uh, -to -day, doing everything he can uh, to stay focused and um, to, to mentally stay resilient. It's been an incredibly difficult journey. Uh, more ahead, uh, obviously, we're thinking of you now and tomorrow as he faces his trial. Uh, thanks for your advocacy. And uh, take good care, Vina, and, and, and we'll, we'll have you back on, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much, Evan. And I, I just wanted to say one final thing. 
Canadians have been remarkable. People around the world have been remarkable. Uh, I, I just wanted to mention that the solidarity for the last two years and this week in particular uh, has really been a blessing and means a lot. Thank you. Uh, well said. And we, we, we send you back all that strength. Thank you again. Thanks. Bye-bye. So how much danger are the two Michaels in now? What else can Canada do to get them released? Let's bring in Canada's former ambassador to China, Guy Saint-Jacques. Uh, good to have you back on the program. Um, Michael Kovrig faces trial tomorrow. You saw what happened to Michael Spavor on Friday. Um, what did you make of the trial? What did it tell you about what the Chinese are doing? Well, I think it's the, the worst uh, that I've seen, uh, and it's uh, clearly a, a travesty of justice. Uh, uh, if I refer to another case that uh, I was involved with, that of uh, Kevin Garrett back in April 2016, at least it, uh, it had uh, lasted uh, one uh, full uh, working day. In this case, uh, two hours uh, clearly is not enough for the judge to review the evidence. Or, uh, plus, the evidence was not shared with uh, Michael's favor or nor with his lawyer. Uh, so this is all preordained. It's a, a sham. Uh, and uh, uh, we know uh, uh, what will be the outcome. I expect that uh, we will see ne next week a guilty verdict, uh, and, and then that will be followed with a very harsh uh, sentence uh, uh, down the road. So when the Canadian government says, you know, we're on this, we passed the Declaration Against Arbitrary Detention that's got 50-plus countries on it, uh, diplomats in the United States and allied countries showed up outside the courtroom, even though it was a secret trial, um, what else can Canada do, sir? Well, unfortunately, I think at this stage, uh, uh, it's out of the control uh, of, the, uh, of the government. I think the only thing is to uh, speak with uh, Washington to see what else they could do. And I think that maybe uh, there are a few uh, uh, scenarios that uh, should be looked at. Uh, one, for instance, would be the if the uh, U.S. Uh, uh, Department of Justice were to resume negotiations with Mrs. Wang, try to reach a plea bargain that which she would find uh, acceptable. Uh, maybe that would uh, uh, include uh, a huge fine for Huawei. Uh, or else they could maintain the accusations against her, but withdraw the request for extradition. And that would allow Canada to say, well, uh, you are free to uh, go back home. And then that would open the door for negotiations to get the two Michaels uh, back once the, uh, they have been ended uh, a sentence. But uh, let's not kid ourselves. China may want to extract something else from us, and, and I expect that those would be uh, uh, very tough negotiations. Well, we'll see what happens. Um, Guy Saint-Jacques, good to have you on the program again. Thanks for your uh, perspective. Thank you for the invitation. All right, coming up, Biden's big batch of vaccines finally heads to Canada. But is the U.S. vaccine nationalism holding up millions more doses? And is vaccine confusion making some people here hesitant to take AstraZeneca? The procurement minister, Anita Nan, joins us, and so does Dr. Caroline Quash from the National Advisory Committee on Immunization. Stay right here with Question Period. Yesterday, you may have heard that the White House is talking about sending Canada one and a half million doses of AstraZeneca. We're finalizing an agreement with this, uh, on this with the American administration as we speak. A vaccine deluge from the U.S., but also a deluge of vaccine questions. The government is finalizing an agreement with the United States to receive one and a half million doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine. Mexico will get two and a half million doses. 
But remember, Canada has already purchased 20 million doses of that vaccine to be produced at a U.S. factory. Now, the Biden administration has faced a lot of backlash because they're sitting on millions of doses of AstraZeneca in a warehouse because they have yet to approve it for use in the United States. So why is this one and a half million doses a quote, an exchange agreement with Canada? That means we have to return doses once our shipments are, are in. Is U.S. vaccine nationalism blocking Canada's vaccine supply? Let's get some details now. Joining me is Canada's procurement minister, Anita Anand. Minister, good to have you back on the program. Obviously, unabashedly good news to get a million and a half doses of AstraZeneca from the U.S. When exactly are they going to arrive in Canada? Well, thanks for having me on, Evan. And let's just set the frame with these 1.5 million doses of AstraZeneca coming from the United States. Canada will see 9.5 million doses in total coming into the country prior to the end of March. We expect those doses to come very shortly prior to the end of this month. I just got off the phone uh, with the various parties and we are sorting out the final details relating to the arrangement. What was the holdup here? We're trying to figure this out because Canada did, has bought and paid for 20 million doses of AstraZeneca. They're supposed to be produced at this same U.S. factory. Was this the U.S. government actively holding up doses that Canada's bought and paid for, and they're sitting in the warehouse, I think they've got 7 million of them sitting there, because they haven't given the approval for that? Or are these doses that AstraZeneca sold to the United States and the U.S. is kind of benevolently deciding to release them? It is the latter, Evan. Indeed, uh, these are doses that were destined for the United States, and the United States has agreed with both Canada and Mexico to share those doses in exchange for a repayment of those doses once we get AstraZeneca doses under our bilateral APA, which will be in the second and third quarter of this year. But could the U.S. hold up the delivery of Canada's vaccine supply? So when will the 20 million doses produced at that factory actually be designated the Canadian shipment, or can the U.S. say, you know, they're all ours until we decide, no, this batch is for Canada? Well, my priority as procurement minister is to get as many doses into Canada as early as possible. And that's why you're seeing an increase of 3.5 million doses into this quarter from the second and third quarters. And in addition to that, um, we are negotiating with AstraZeneca right now. And I have stressed the importance of having a delivery schedule for those 20 million doses as soon as possible so that the provinces and territories can continue their planning. Expiry dates has been an issue for the AstraZeneca. 300,000 arrived, obviously from India, but they had to be used before the end of April. Um, the United States has been sitting on a lot of these doses, the 1.5 million that they've been languishing in their uh, production facility because they haven't approved it. What is the expiry date on the 1.5 million doses the U.S. has released? Well, let's just talk about expiry dates for a moment. All vaccines have expiry dates. All doses that we have received have been utilized very quickly after receipt. And that's what we as a federal government are encouraging provinces and territories to do. In particular, with regards to your question, we are seeing an expiry date of about 60 days at the um, minimum from the end of March. Uh, so there is time to get these vaccines out and into arms, and that's exactly what we expect to see. All right, so, uh, well, the, the sooner they arrive, obviously, the better. Uh, Anita Nand, I really appreciate you joining us, Minister. Thank you.
Anytime. Take care. Health Canada uh, and our experts and scientists have spent an awful lot of time uh, making sure that every vaccine uh, approved in Canada is both safe and effective. Therefore, the best vaccine for you to take is the very first one that is offered to you. So with one and a half million doses of AstraZeneca coming imminently, have the safety concerns that have plagued the vaccine led to vaccine hesitancy? After all, there have been conflicting reports about who should use the vaccine. AstraZeneca was approved in Canada at the end of February, but shortly after the National Advisory Committee on Immunization recommended it not be used by those people over the age of 65. Then it changed that recommendation two weeks later after new data was presented. And then European countries like Germany and France and Italy and others suspended their use of the vaccine over concerns about blood clots. Then their decision was reversed after the European Medical Agency concluded that it was safe and there's no evidence that it causes blood clots. So why has there been so much confusion about this particular vaccine? To talk about that and more, we're joined now by Dr. Carolyn Quash. She's, of course, from the National Advisory Committee on Immunization. Dr. Quash, thanks for your work and, and great to have you on the program again. Some folks are just confused by all this, and I, I appreciate that, that you're changing based on the data, but even, you know, Premier Doug Ford in Ontario said it was frustration that NACI was moving the goalposts and they had to shift their strategy, and why was there a light between what Health Canada approves it and what uh, NACI, your, your committee, approves? Um, how come your how come your committee is not more aligned with Health Canada for one basically one message here? Well, the thing is, we are two separate committees that are not reviewing the same data um, in this with the same lens when we make our recommendations. So Health Canada is looking at one product, given you know looking at efficacy, um, safety, and how it's manufactured. NACI is looking at this vaccine. Um, in the light of other vaccines that exist and may be making preferential recommendations. Um, as I said um, before, you know, having known that these two additional studies, the real-world effectiveness studies, would come out on March 2nd and 3rd, the day after our recommendation right. was posted, we would have waited. But it's impossible to know, looking ahead, um, right. to know exactly what's going to come at you. It just seems, you know, because Canadians are trying to figure out wh whose voice to trust, you know, the NACI or, or, or Health Canada, and it's hard for, I think, most folks to distinguish. You know, just, it's fascinating to watch you, like you and the, and the doctors on, on the National Advisory Committee on, on Immunization. This is not a full-time job. You're volunteering. You're also in practice. I saw your beeper going off because you were on call during one of your very critical press conferences. Should this be changed so this is a full-time job to expedite decisions so NACI's a full-time job the way Health Canada is? I think the, the importance of NACI is that it's an external advisory body so that we're not paid by, by PHAC, we're not, you know, we don't, we're, we don't have any undue pressure from the politicians and from anyone. So we're able to give our recommendation as freely as, we, as it needs to be. I think that's one of the strengths of that committee. And in fact, when you look at what WHO recommends in terms of national advisory um, committees, it's, it has to be outside of the ministry, outside of the public health agency. It has to be an independent body of expert. And if you want that independence, then you need people who are on the ground doing other things. It also adds some insight into um, the decision you're making, because if you're only sitting in your, in your ivory tower, it's harder than to relate to what's actually happening. It's been a tough year, and, and, and you do get a lot of pushback, don't you? Like everything you say, 
I mean, you were, you know, you got accused of flip-flopping and, and these vaccines yeah. are good. Like, how do you deal with that? I understand that some people may not be happy, but I, you know, this is to me the best thing um, that could be done. Um, we, I don't have any regret on the recommendations we've made so far. Um, and we're trying to, you know, keep the highest uh, standards in terms of rigor and uh, transparency and, you know, accountability. There's nothing else that I can do. If I know that I've, we've been doing our job well, then the, you know, the outcome is fine. Dr. Quash, I appreciate your work and I appreciate you coming on this morning. Thank you again. Thank you. Have a good day. All right, coming up, Biden bailout. Will President Joe Biden release more AstraZeneca vaccines to Canada or will vaccine nationalism in that country stop Canada's supply? And will the U.S. help release the two Michaels from Chinese prison as Michael Kovrig faces his perilous trial tomorrow? Canada's ambassador to the United States, Kirsten Hillman, joins us when we come back. Stay right here with Question Period. balancing the need to let the approval process play out of the AstraZeneca vaccine uh, as it's taking place in the U.S. with the importance of helping stop the spread of the, of, in other countries. We are assessing how we can loan doses. It's not, it's, it's, we are, we are, that is our aim. It's not fully finalized yet, but that is our aim and what we're working toward uh, to Canada and Mexico. Well, you might call the Biden bailout. The U.S. is sending one and a half million doses of AstraZeneca to Canada, which is good news. But Canada has bought 20 million doses of that vaccine to be produced in the U.S. Are these being held up by a U.S. policy of vaccine nationalism? And will the U.S. do anything else to help the release of Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig? Remember, Michael Spavor faced trial on Friday. Michael Kovrig faces trial tomorrow. Talk about that and other issues. We are joined now by Canada's ambassador to the United States, Kirsten Hillman. Ambassador Hillman, good to have you on the program. Uh, I, I, let's just start with the two Michaels, uh, the trial. The prime minister spoke, uh, has the prime minister spoken to President Biden since China announced that the two Michaels will stand trial? Um, the prime minister and the president haven't spoken since that announcement, but the prime minister and the president have spoken about the Michaels in every conversation that they've had. Um, since the election, even before the president was inaugurated as president, the issue came up and it's come up in every conversation they've had since, including with the prime minister's conversation with the vice president, uh, with Secretary Blinken. And I actually I'm not sure there's a single conversation that we have with the senior right. member of the U.S. administration where this topic isn't front and center. Has the administration given any indication that that they might tie the extradition request of uh, Huawei exec Meng Wanzhou to, to this, for example, they could, I don't know, drop the extradition request, change it to a civil trial. Have they given you any indication that they may uh, change um, the process here? So what the administration has said to us uh, from the president on down is that one, they condemn the arbitrary detention. Two, they will work with us to do everything they can to secure the release of the Michaels. And three, um, many members of the U.S. administration have said to me that they will be treating the work towards the release of the Michaels as though it wa they were American citizens. And that's a very powerful thing. Okay, so we'll see what happens tomorrow with that trial. I want to turn to vaccines. Did the U.S. hold up Canada's AstraZeneca doses at, at that factory where we're expecting them from? Uh, or what secured the release of these one and a half million vaccines? So the U.S. absolutely did not 
hold up the uh, release of any vaccines that were destined for Canada. We have a contract with AstraZeneca for 20 million doses. The delivery schedule of those doses was such that we were expecting the first delivery of those doses in June, uh, with more to follow over the course of the summer. The arrangement that we secured with the United States uh, late last week was to um, provide to Canada 1.5 million doses from the U.S. supply that they had. And if I can just say, I mean, it is a testament to the tone and tenor that we have here in Washington with this administration around working together on partnerships, in, in partnership on issues that are really pressing for both our countries. Okay. So, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't be happier. But what does that mean, the tone and tenor? Like, what is it that finally secured? I mean, Mexico had two and a half million, Canada gets a million and a half doses. What is it? And, and if that's the case, um, you know, Canadian politicians are saying, hey, maybe their factory for Pfizer in Kalamazoo could also release some. Is that an option now? So there's a lot of things that went into that discussion. The discussions have been going on for quite a few weeks. The Prime Minister raised it with the President and Minister Anand, of course, has been deeply involved and we've been having a lot of conversations here in Washington. And there are a few things. First and foremost, um, Obviously, the president is committed to making sure that he has the vaccines that he needs for the American people. He's been very, very clear about that, and, and he is now clearly on a path to, to make that happen. At the same time, we have been saying, and I think the Americans very much accept, that their country here in the U.S. is not going to get back to full normalcy and is not going to move towards economic recovery in, in a full way if it cannot operate um, well with its neighbors. So economic recovery is going to require both Canada and Mexico also being on a path to having the virus under control. Let me just move on to pipelines because, you know, one of the first things uh, President Biden did was shut down Keystone XL pipeline. Now the governor of Michigan, uh, Governor Whitmer, who's very close to Joe Biden, wants to shut down another Canadian pipeline, the Enbridge Line 5. It runs under the Mackinac Strait in, in Lake Michigan, as you know. This would have a massive impact on jobs in Canada, on the energy supply. The governor has revoked the easement of the, the 1953 easement. Yeah, she accuses the uh, Ambridge of violating its terms. She's pointed out there have been 29 spills in 50 years, that the detection system is faulty, it's outlived its usefulness. Have you spoken to the Biden administration about this? I have. I've spoken to the Biden administration about the president. And, you know, when the president and the prime minister spoke a couple of weeks ago, it was raised. I have spoken to senior members of the Biden administration. In fact, this week we had... Um, the President's National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, came for in-person meetings here at the Embassy, and we had 10 separate other meetings with very senior officials of the Biden administration from their economic and their national security teams, uh, and Line 5 was raised in those meetings. So it is, a, it is an issue that we are raising, and when we talk about it, what we're talking about with them is the importance, as you've rightly pointed out, the importance of the pipeline not only for jobs, but actually really important energy supply into Michigan and into some of the neighboring states, as well as for Ontario and Quebec. So the significance of this pipeline that is already operating has been for 65 years. Unlike, you know, it is different than the Keystone issue. I know that's a very disappointing decision for Canada. I personally am very disappointed in that decision. However, that was a pipeline under construction. 
right? This is a pipeline that has been operating for 65 years that provides vital products to the United States and to Canada. So in those discussions, we talk about the profile of that pipeline, the importance right. of it for our energy relationship, the importance of it for American communities, uh, and the real consequences of shutting it down. Lots of big issues on your plate. I appreciate you joining us this morning. Thanks, Ambassador. Really great to talk to you. Thanks, Evan. Coming up, the military is in a full crisis over its inability to deal with accusations of sexual misconduct after a high-profile resignation in the military. Is there any faith left in the system? The Scrum is next, and our special guest is the former Canadian Armed Forces Captain, Angela Mondu. Stay right here with Question Period. Disgusted, breach of trust, lost all credibility. Those are just some of the damning accusations from a widely respected soldier, Lieutenant Colonel Eleanor Taylor, who led troops in combat in Afghanistan. She moved over to Canada's elite special forces, JTF-2. Uh, she announced she was resigning from the Canadian forces. Lieutenant Colonel Taylor's letter argues that the leadership in the military has failed to deal with the inappropriate sexual behavior that's, she says, rife in the ranks at the highest level. Throughout my career, she writes, I've observed insidious and inappropriate use of power for sexual exploitation. Her letter says that the military program to root this out, it's called Operation Honor, is such a failure, she says they should drop the name. Her resignation comes as the former chief of the defense staff, General Jonathan Vance, faces an investigation into allegations of inappropriate sexual behavior, which he denies. And then his successor, Admiral Art McDonald, has now stepped aside after allegations about him have come forward. How did this go on for so long? And should the Minister of Defense, Harjit Sajjan, have acted sooner on some allegations to root this out? Talk about that, the scrum is here. Joyce Napier is the CTV Ottawa Bureau Chief. Tonda McCharles is a reporter on Parliament Hill with the Toronto Star. And our special guest for this round is retired Canadian Armed Forces Captain Angela Mondu. She spent nine years in the military. She served in places like Yugoslavia. She was the only woman and leader on the ground for seven weeks there. She's been an honorary colonel and is now the CEO of a tech company. Good morning to all of you. Captain Mondu, I just want to say thank you for your service to the country, first of all. When you have watched two chiefs of the defense staff under investigation, and then this high-profile resignation, and, and the culture that Lieutenant Colonel Taylor describes, poisonous, um, did that resonate with you with your time in the military? Well, I have to say that I'm not surprised, Evan, with the colonel's resignation, um, her phenomenal experience, and she feels she can't continue to serve the nation. I'm very astonished at the, the level of leadership right now that's under question. And, you know, I really think that the military is at a significant inflection point in history. And I think more importantly, Canada has a challenge when we're looking at a national institution of ours that represents our security and our defense. Um, and the brand right now is being tarnished, which really means our confidence as a nation when you look at the CEO, if you will, of that organization, the CDS, and both of them in the last few months um, being um, alleged uh, alleged uh, for behavior that's um, not acceptable. So not surprised with the Lieutenant Colonel's resignation, um, concerned uh, that we're continuing to look at challenges at the senior most levels mm -hmm. of the forces, uh, particularly with one of these leaders having really led the op honor, which I think has been a 
phenomenal first step for the forces, but clearly there's a lot more work to do. My question is when the level of leadership, the CDS of an organization um, is stepping down, resigning and under question for inappropriate behavior, where is the accountability for this organization? Well, let's talk about that, uh, political accountability, mm -hmm. Tonda, because it has become a full-blown crisis, uh, not only for the military, but for the government, and at the center of it is the Defense Minister, Harjit Sajjan, um, allegations that, you know, uh, that he had seen some allegations from the Ombudsman uh, about General Vance, but, but just passed it over. He says, if I'd done anything, it would be political interference. What's at stake for Minister Sajjan right now in the government? Well, look, Ms. Mondu talks about, um, you know, a leadership inflection point in the military. I think there's a crisis of leadership within the military, but on this issue, there's a crisis of political leadership. Because clearly, though this government talks the talk, it doesn't know how to walk the walk of dealing with sexual misconduct or any allegations of harassment, gender-based harassment, and workplace harassment in a way that instills confidence and restores workplaces. Look, the minister, when he testified, right away didn't want to know, didn't want to tell. It's somebody else's job to look after that. If I were to investigate or get involved, he said it would have been interference. There was no investigation begun. I, I'm at a loss to understand the government's line on this, to say that the Privy Council Office, the Prime Minister's department, if you will, was the place where this allegation was going to be dealt with. And they said, oh, well, no one's going to come forward with more information, nothing we can do. Where is the 360 workplace review? Where did the minister think? Who did the minister think was going to undertake that? And, you know, we saw that the government was forced to deal with the allegations at Rideau Hall when it became a tsunami of allegations broken by the media. Um, maybe that's what uh, the minister was waiting for here. I have no idea. It makes no sense. There, there, there's just this fractured right. line of, of, of inquiry at the military. Nobody knows where to bring such allegations. All right, Joyce, uh, it's a political issue. It's a military issue. Um, but from a political side, what does the government need to do here? Can they just say, not our business, uh, it's a military issue? Okay, uh, the, uh, the, the minister already tried that to say, this is not my business. And that didn't work so well for the government. I agree with Tonda. I mean, you've got to take your responsibility, and somewhere it's got to stop. It's got to land on the desk that, of somebody who is responsible. And so far, um, and, 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 and it's, a, it's the, the style of this, of this government to be able to sort of not take responsibility. I think the first thing they should change is the name of the operation, because keep calling it Operation Honor is ridiculing it, and you know it hasn't worked it's clearly something that is more widespread than anyone ever imagined uh, because we're told that since um, Jonathan uh, Vance left and the scandal broke there are daily daily uh, complaints by women in the army daily and not mm. one or two of them but many of them so they seem to now be coming out of the woodwork because there was nowhere else they could go because nobody took responsibility for this. And if anybody did, and if any woman complained, um, you know, she knew what would happen to her. So they stayed silent. You know, retired uh, Captain Mondu, back in 2015, yeah. the military was supposed to deal with this. They had the external review into sexual misconduct and sexual harassment in the Canadian Armed Forces. It was conducted by Marie Deschamps. A senior military mm -hmm. source I spoke to said that in retrospect, they never really dealt with that. They actually never really mm -hmm. believed there was a problem back then. 
what mm -hmm. needs to happen now, even though they've just appointed the first female vice chief of the defense staff, is that mm -hmm. enough? What needs to happen in your view? Well, I think there's a couple of things. One, I think that Op Honor was a great first step and it set some policies and rigor and format and framework around what should happen. A couple of things are missing. The accountability, and I think it was Joyce that touched on this. So the military does its, its own jury, if you will, and it, we do need an external, I believe, an external um, independent organization that the members, the victims can go to that they have trust and confidence in. So right now, the system, although there was a, a mechanism to put in harassment complaints, there's still the challenge of staying silent when you have that old guard leadership at the top that is not necessarily acting um, in leading by example, if you will, against op honor. I think one thing I really do want to mention here is I think the culture has moved along quite significantly. I was an honorary colonel recently. We have the 20-somethings, 30-somethings, 40-somethings that are a very new breed of leader in the forces. I'm, I, there is room for this old guard. It's my age, if you will, general advances, et cetera. The older era that, that really need to be vetted and or a, a rigor around the discipline of behavior going forward and what needs to happen with that older leadership that perhaps we can attribute some of the toxicity to. All right, got to leave it there. Uh, retired Captain Mondu, thanks for joining us. Tonda McCharles, thanks for joining us. Joyce is going to stick around because coming up next, Aaron O'Toole in the spotlight. After the big conservative convention this week, did Aaron O'Toole heal the divisions in his party? And what's his strategy to win an election that could come anytime? The Scrum is next with our special guest, former conservative deputy leader, Lisa Ray. Stay right here with Question Period. I want all Canadians to feel welcome in the Conservative Party of Canada. Whether you're black, white, or brown, whether you're LGBTQ or straight, whether you worship on Fridays, Saturdays, Sundays, every day, or not at all, you are welcome in our party. In fact, we need your help. It was not the usual leader speech where hundreds of people cheer a new leader and try to generate momentum for someone who's about to enter his first campaign. But when Aaron O'Toole delivered his critical speech to the Conservative Party convention on Friday evening, he was alone on stage. But after all, look, this was a virtual campaign. But with a federal election looming at some point soon, it's a critical moment. So what was Mr. O'Toole's message? Well, the party is flush with money. That's good. But he argues the party needs to change. To what? Well, that was a little more vague. He wants it to be much more inclusive. He says he has a recovery plan for the economy post-pandemic, but there are a few details on issues like a price on carbon. He passed, saying to those who are expecting a dramatic moment, I'm afraid you'll be disappointed. So no dramatic moments. But did he set the scene to put the party on a winning footing? How did he do? Let's bring back the scrum. Joyce Napier, our CTV Ottawa Bureau Chief, is back. And our special guests are Nick Nano, CEO of Nano's Research, and Lisa Raitt, the former deputy leader and a minister in the Conservative Party. All right, uh, let's dig in. Conservative Party convention, Lisa, you've been to a lot. This is the virtual one. Um, what did Aaron O'Toole do in your mind to introduce himself, make the party his own, and what was the big takeaway? So in the first 90 seconds, he comes out and he says that we have to grow, we have to be bold, and we have to change in order to win the next election. And I thought that was a smart move. Coming right out of the gates, 
setting what he believes is the path to victory, which is what conservatives want to hear right now. And then a little bit later on, he got into the stuff that conservatives absolutely love, a five-point plan on Canada's recovery, talking about security in all kinds of different ways. So made a lot of sense. People are going to love the talking points. It's going to be a great success from the conservative delegate point of view. Okay, uh, Nick, uh, what did what did you think he did in that speech to kind of make the party his own and maybe introduce the big idea of Aaron O'Toole? For a party that's eight points back of the Liberals, what we heard from Aaron O'Toole, at least, was probably the most ambitious campaign strategy that has been seen for the Conservatives in at least 15 years. The last 15 years, the Conservative strategy has been built around the fact that most Canadians don't vote and don't like the Conservatives, and they built coalitions. What was heard from Aaron O'Toole is that he wants a big tent and a big win. Whether it's realistic or not, it's too early to tell. Right. Uh, Joyce, what, what did you make of it? Because you know, he's always said that, I want inclusive, but, but what is the Aaron O'Toole? Was, you know, was he the Aaron O'Toole, the true blue conservative who ran the campaign, who defended social conservatives like Derek Sloan and railed against cancel culture? Or is this a, an Aaron O'Toole who canceled Derek Sloan, booted him from the party, talks about courting unions and being pro-choice? Who's the Aaron O'Toole? Well, that is the Aaron O'Toole, I think, uh, Evan, and uh, this was his way to introduce himself. And I think, look, aside from the, the technical hitches that were strange, I mean, this is a, a, a weird convention, let's face it, uh, even soulless. I mean, it's, it, it's difficult to do. Nobody's clapping, no interruptions. Uh, you're talking, you know, to a camera uh, like we are doing. Um, listen. Um, he talked about whether you're white, black, or brown, whether you're LGBTQ, whether you uh, worship on, on Saturday, Sunday, on Friday, or not at all, you are welcome in this tent. It, that was very clever. That was a way to sort of stop the attacks coming from the liberals, because those are sometimes liberal attacks. They try to find you know, the, the MP or the conservative who is maybe a little too social conservative also. His French, his address to Quebec was actually quite clever. He knows that Justin Trudeau needs a couple of those Bloc Québécois seats in Quebec in order to get a majority. Well, he's going to fight him in Quebec. This is what I see uh, in, his, in the French part of his speech when he tells Quebec, you know, more powers, a more um, cooperative federalism. Quebec loves that. So, you know, he touched on a lot of sensitive chords that were quite clever. And, uh, and I think it will resonate in Quebec with some people who think the bloc is not really helping me out. You know, they're always going to be in the opposition. And maybe I'm tired of Justin Trudeau. So that's what he's going to go get. Uh, Lisa Ray, you had said earlier in the week that you lost your last campaign because the party didn't have a price on carbon and didn't have a coherent climate plan. He says he's going to have a climate plan, but then he says no dramatic announcements. Um, so, you know, is this one of those things where, the, you know, the big Christmas present, you open the box, there's nothing inside, or, or does, is he serious about this? Well, he said himself that we lost two elections fighting the carbon tax, and I think that is an acknowledgement that that's what happened. But secondly, Evan, I mean, he really has a, a tough spot right now because this coming Thursday, the Supreme Court of Canada is going to tell those four provinces whether or not the federal carbon tax is actually constitutional. 
And if they do find that the federal government is allowed to charge a carbon tax, those support provinces are very going to very quickly going to find their own way to price their own carbon because they don't want the money going to Ottawa. They want the money to go to their their own provincial capitals. And that's why Aaron also said we're going to make sure provinces have latitude on the environment. It's a placeholder. We'll have to wait and see what comes, depending upon what the Supreme Court of Canada says. So, Nick, what's his biggest challenge? I mean, is it a price on carbon? How does he, you know, I know he tacked right in the leadership convention. Now he's tacking back to the center. What's the biggest challenge for growth in that party? They got to get beyond that 30% base. Well, you know, the biggest challenge for Aaron O'Toole and the Conservatives is actually to woo Liberal voters that in the past have voted Conservatives and to swing them back into the blue column, which probably explains his strategy. What we got was a down payment from a policy perspective. But all O'Toole has to do is to say he's not Justin Trudeau, that he's not risky, and that he's open for business. And I think that's the key mess. Those were the three key messages that he tried to drive home in his speech. All right, uh, Joyce, Joyce, finally, it's tough for any opposition in the midst of, uh, of this. I get it. You know, it's a uh, pandemic. He seemed to focus a lot on the recovery. Was he setting up the ballot box question? Not on the pandemic, because look, Justin Trudeau, who survived this kind of vaccine drought, and now we're in the vaccine deluge, it seems that Aaron O'Toole wants to make this about the recovery, not about the delivery. Well, because it may be past that delivery. It right. may be the election may happen once, you know, most Canadians are vaccinated or they've got their first shot and we're on our way to the second shot. And that will be in our rear view mirrors. What will be ahead of us? And I think that is also clever, will be the economy, the economy, the economy. That's what people are going to be talking about, the recovery. How are we going to get those small businesses back on track? How are we going to get our neighborhoods to, you know, all those boarded shops? How are, how are we going to look? What is it going to look like uh, once this pandemic is over? And, um, you know, that's, if that's where he concentrates, we're going to see, uh, eventually, we're going to see a liberal budget. Um, and then he'll have something to work on. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be watching. I think it's interesting, and I think it's always interesting. Uh, governments are always better when they have a good opposition, and uh, so I'm going to be watching very closely. All right, I, I got to leave it there. We'll find out what uh, the social conservative continued if they're motivated to 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 work. There's lots of questions, but that's what politics is all about. All right, uh, Lisa Raitt, Nick Danos, and Joyce Napier. Great to have the three of you on the program. That is question period for this week. Thanks so much for joining us. We will be back here in seven short days, but I'll see you tomorrow at 5 p.m. Eastern on CTV News Channel's Power Play. Take care and hug your loved ones if it's safe to do so.